You're uh, familiar with the saying that there is no I in team. Well, last week, following my sermon, uh, Gregory said to me, you know, there is an I in unity. And I said, that's true, but there's also a you. In fact, the thing about unity is that there has to be both. Unity can only be spelled with U-N-I. That's what makes unity so special. Um, And that's what we're studying about here, Um, not just in this text today, but with this whole series on Ephesians. This letter is about unity. Um, And so I believe the Lord's teaching us much about unity through um, this study. Last week, I I mentioned a song by the band U2 titled One. Uh, And my parents are here on the front row, and so I'm not going to explain for them who U2 is, but uh, Alan, your oldest son, really got into U2, and I followed lead. But there's a line uh, in the chorus of this song titled One that says, we're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other. And I think that it's a beautiful uh, and a powerful statement about unity. You see, biblical unity does not mean uniformity. John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, wrote, we must not imagine every Christian as an exact replica of every other, as if we'd all been mass-produced in some factory. That's uniformity, not unity. Unity does not mean that you get rid of your individuality. If you look around and all you see are people who look like you and think exactly like you, then you're not necessarily experiencing unity. It it might just be uniformity. Yet, you too sings and Paul proclaims that unity is being one but not the same. So these last two weeks, last week and this week, we're focusing in primarily here on chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. It's one of the classic texts uh, in the New Testament on Christian unity. And last week, we looked at the first six verses. And the summary of verses 1 through 6 is that we are one. That's a great summary for those first six verses. We're one. Then in verse 7... Verse 7 begins with a but, and so you can circle that word. We're one, but we're not the same. Paul writes, but each one of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And the word but emphasizes a contrast that Paul's making between verse 6 and verse 7, from all and all and all and all in verse 6 to each one of us in verse 7. There's unity, but there's diversity. We're one, but we're not the same. 
In the first three chapters of this letter, Paul has emphasized that the church will be diverse due primarily to their difference in ethnicity at birth. This group that Paul's writing to is a group that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. But here in verse 7, Paul emphasizes that the church will be diverse not due to their difference in ethnicity at birth, but due to their difference in giftedness at rebirth. You see, the unity of the church is to be exciting in its diversity, not just because it's made up of Jew and Gentile, men and women, black and white, young and old, but also because of the different gifts which Christ gives to each one of us. But to each one of us, Paul writes, was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each one of us has received a different measure of grace from Christ himself. And by grace, you have to do a little word study here about grace, because by grace, Paul does not mean God's saving grace, but what I'm going to call God's serving grace. I hope that makes sense. Because God has given his saving grace to all of us in equal measure. But what Paul tells us here in verse 7 is that God has given his serving grace to each one of us in different measures. Another way to think about this is we've all received a different amount of grace for ministry. In other words, to each one of us, some kind of ministry has been given. Paul uses the word grace in this exact same way as I'm I'm talking about. Um, Just a little back in Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 8, when he writes, Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so by grace there, Paul doesn't mean the saving grace of God that saved him from sin and death. He means the serving grace that was given specifically here to him to preach the good news to the Gentiles. That was the serving grace that was given to Paul. And so um, he was given that serving grace, that ministry to preach. And this reality, I think, that each one of us has been given a gift, that that each one of us has been given a ministry, is extremely important to understanding Paul's imagery of the church. Because he's not writing this letter to a group of preachers. He's not sending this letter out to a minister's conference to be read to all the full-time ministers. By each one of us, ministry has been given. He's not referring to me and to Kevin and Jeremy and Evan and Jessica. He means all of you. He means each one of you. He uses this term measure three times in this section, depending on your translation, the NRSV, the ESV, others translated as measure 
And he actually uses that word three times in this section uh, between verse 7 and verse 16. He uses it in verse 7, uses it in verse 13, and then he also uses it in verse 16. Um, and, and what he's saying here, if you, if you read into what he's writing by repeating and emphasizing this word, each one of us, this is really good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it two different ways because of how good it is. Each one of us has only been given a measure of Christ's serving grace. It's as if... Um, Some of you have been given one cup of sugar, and somebody else has been given a half a cup of flour, and somebody else two cups of butter. We've each only been given a measure of Christ's serving grace because Jesus wants for us to be jealous of the measure that we each have received. And he wants for us to compare the measures we've received And to be prideful that we've received a measure that someone else hasn't. And to be judgmental that someone else has not received a measure in the same way we have. No, that's not right. That's just what we do naturally as human beings. But listen, this is, this is so important. And it's so good to, under, and, and to understanding the importance of unity. What Christ has done in verse 7, each one of us has only been given a measure by Christ. In his sovereignty, he's given each one of us a measure. Because, in verse 13, he wants for all of us to attain to the measure of the fullness of Christ only when... Verse 16, each part of the whole body is working properly, the NRSV. Only as each part of the whole body does its work, the NIV 84. Only as each part does its own special work, New Living Translation. Literally, get this, only when each part of the whole body does its measure. So each one of us has only been given a measure by Christ so that the only way we will have a full measure of Christ is when each part of the body of Christ does its measure. Isn't that a wonderful way to think about unity? The only way we will ever come to knowing the full likeness or the full measure of Christ is together. Each part of the body doing its measure that it's been given. And this is why unity is so important. Each part together, doing its measure. This is kind of a silly illustration, but um, I, I share it knowing that my parents are going to be on the front row. Um, so we, I don't know why we never pulled the trigger on this, but my, I, I'm the middle of three boys, and 
several different times this has come up throughout our lives, but we, we wanted to get, we all wanted to get a tattoo. And, uh, and what we wanted, the, the, what we wanted to do with this tattoo, we had this great idea that we, we were all going to get a tattoo on our arm right here, okay? And uh, the only way that you would be able to tell what it said or meant or became is if the three of us were to all together, right? Right? Wouldn't that have been cool? And then the only way is if, like, I'm the middle, and I'm old, if we had to all be in the right order even, like if I was first, it all, you wouldn't be able to tell, and, but only if we're all together, it'd spell some word, Kaufman, I don't know. Who knows what it would have done? We've never pulled the trigger on it, but we always talked about that, and uh, to me, that's a, that's a great illustration of unity, because it's only together with all the parts that we can display or show the fullness of Christ. We all talk about, when we talk about discipleship, about growing in the likeness of Christ, right? But what Paul tells us here is that you can only grow into the full likeness of Christ together. So each one of us has been given a gift from Christ, Each one of us a different gift and in a different measure. Christ in his sovereignty chooses what gift to give to you and what gift to give to me. And so we want to use our gifts, each each one of us. Christ himself has given us these gifts to use. And, you know, what I've learned through the years, sometimes the hard way, is, is that instead of spending so much time reading about and thinking about and, and taking spiritual gift inventories and assessments and in order to determine um, what my specific gift is that I've been given, a better use of my time and energy is just to be a gift, <laughs> to be a blessing, to, to have that mindset. And then let God reveal to me specifically how he wants to, to use me. Don't, instead of asking, what is my gift? Instead, just ask, how can I be a gift? What if each of us had that perspective and that mindset? I think it would transform the church. Think about it with me like this. What if I thought of myself as God's gift to this church? Now, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek because I know typically how one uses that phrase. Usually, we'll only use that phrase to describe someone who's prideful and full of themselves, right? We'll say, oh, he thinks he's God's gift to mankind. It's a negative statement. Yet here, I'm attempting to use it positively to think of myself as a gift to this church, Now, I'm not saying I'm the new iPhone 12. I might just be the the pair of socks from your least favorite aunt or the broken candy cane in the stocking. But regardless, the point is we must begin to think of ourselves as a gift to this church and begin to see others as God's gift to this church. 
I mentioned uh, last week that even though Paul implies the theme of unity um, all throughout his letters, what's unique about this text here in Ephesians 4 is it's the only place where he actually uses the word unity. And he does it twice um, in verse 3 and then also verse 13. In verse 3, he writes, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Then in verse 13, he writes, until all of us come to the unity of the faith. And so two very similar phrases, the unity of the Spirit and the unity of the faith. And if you understand Paul's train of thought, he's saying that the unity of the Spirit produces the unity of the faith. They go hand in hand. One leads into the other. Because as we talked last week, the Holy Spirit is a spirit of unity. Where the Spirit is present, there will be unity. That's the facts. And Christ gives each one of us, in verse 7, a gift of the Spirit in order for, in verse 13, all of us to come to the unity of the faith. I'm becoming more and more convinced that unity is the primary purpose for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're given to each one of us to bring all of us to the unity of the faith. And I think this is so important when studying or talking about spiritual gifts. They're gifts of Christ given to bring unity to the body of Christ. They're never given for selfish purposes. They're never given to build up the work of any one individual. They're always and only given to bring unity to the body of Christ. Then, in verse 13, Paul equates unity with maturity. He uses it as a synonym. And I think this is a really important connection to make. Paul's saying in verse 13, when it comes to our relationships, unity is a sign of being mature. And on the other hand, disunity is a sign of being immature. And so as the body of Christ grows and matures, the outcome will be unity. That's the stress and the emphasis of this second section here in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And and with the rest of our time this morning... um, I want to look at three characteristics from the text of unity. I think we will see these three characteristics in a church that is growing and maturing in unity. Characteristic number one, there will be priority placed on God's word. So characteristic number one is the priority of God's word. In verse 11, Paul writes that the gifts he gave were for some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Now, the ministry of the church is not to be some kind of top-down organizational structure where these specific gifts in verse 11 
form positions and official titles for leaders at the top of the structure, and then everyone else is beneath them. That's not what Paul has in mind here. Instead of forming some kind of pyramid structure, what Paul's creating here looks more like a series of concentric circles. There's a circle at the center, and then each circle builds on top of the other. It's kind of like when you drop a rock into the lake, and it forms a circle, and then the waves move out from the center in a ripple effect. And so at the center, this first characteristic of a church growing in unity is the priority of God's word. Now, we don't have time to look at uh, each one of them individually, but each one of these gifts in verse 11 um, has to do with making known God's word. These, these gifts are very specific, and they all, each one deal with, in some form or fashion, making known God's word. And these gifts form the center circle because making known the word of God must be central to the unity of our faith. Down in verse 14, Paul warns the church. He says, we must no longer be children. Immature, right? That's the, that's the, the idea. We must no longer be immature. Tossed to and fro. Blown about by every wind of doctrine. By people's trickery. By their craftiness in deceitful scheming. And you see, in order to not be blown about by every wind of doctrine, at the center of the church must be the very word of God. Because every wind of doctrine brings instability and causes division. The very word of God brings stability and promotes unity. And so you counter every wind with the very word. And so that's why it's right here at the center. The first characteristic is the priority of God's word. The second characteristic, as we continue to look here, um, is the plurality of God's ministry. The plurality of God's ministry. So the priority of God's words at the center, verse 11, and then the next circle, the ripple effect out from this in verse 12, is the equipping of God's people for the works of ministry. In the NIV 84, says that you prepare God's people for the works of service. And how I like to state uh, this, and you've heard me use this term, this language, but how I like to state this as one of our core values here at Southside is that every member is a minister. We're not one. I mean, we are one, but we're not the same because each one of us has been given a different ministry. You know, when kids uh, in the youth group do impressions of me, they do a pretty good job. Uh, Ethan Williams and Jack Johnson particularly do a pretty good Barrett. Um, But one of their go-tos, one of the things they lead with is they say, hello, I'm Barrett, and I'm one of the ministers here at Southside. My kids are like, why do you always say that? Aren't you like the minister? 
No, I'm not. <laughs> I, I do that on purpose. I do that every Sunday. And I do it on purpose because I want to create an understanding at this church that I'm not the only minister. And I'm just not one of the full-time ministers. I'm one of the ministers. All of us are in ministry together. And part of what makes unity in the church such a special thing is that Christ himself has given each one of us a different ministry. Let me ask you a question. Um, Have you heard of the phrase, the priesthood of all believers? Peter uses this language in his letter, and um, it's really an important truth. It simply means that through Christ, every Christian enjoys direct access to God in prayer. The priesthood of all believers. There's, 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 there's no need for a human intercessor. There's no need for a priest. I don't have a special phone that I call God on because I'm the preacher. Each, each one of us has direct access to God through Christ. Well, here, Paul is not uh, emphasizing the priesthood of all believers, but the ministry of all believers. It simply means that from Christ, every Christian has received a gift of ministry. All of you, each one of you. And I love, I love the Greek word um, in verse 12 that is translated equip or prepare depending on your translations, because it's used in the Gospels to refer to the mending of nets to make them useful and serviceable. Isn't that good? So the imagery here is of the church caring for broken nets, mending, encouraging, inspiring, and restoring nets to make them useful and serviceable for ministry. And so the second characteristic of a church that's growing in unity is this plurality of God's ministry. It's not just one person doing all the ministry. It's each member doing the ministry that Christ has given to them. And then the third characteristic is the personality of God's people. The personality of God's people. So the priority of God's word is at the center, and then this kind of ripple effect. Then you have this plurality of God's ministry, and then this third circle is the personality of God's people. It takes a certain kind of personality to build up the body of Christ instead of tearing it down. In verse 15, Paul describes the personality in this way. He says, we are people who do truth in love. Literally, it is truthing in love. That's what Paul writes there. But truthing in love. He actually makes no reference to our speech. Sure, it can include speaking, but... That's not the emphasis. 
And unfortunately, too many people have taken this verse out of context as scriptural support to choose somebody out in the name of Jesus. But that's not what's happening here. The emphasis here is on being people of honesty and love. You see, the only way to grow in unity, the only way to build up the body of Christ is through honesty and love. That's it. That's true for your marriage. That's true for your relationship with your children. That's true for any of your relationships with your friends. The only way to build unity is through honesty and love. We have to be honest with one another. We have to stop being right and start being real. We have to be open. We have to be transparent with one another, not fake, not hiding. And we have to love one another. And this, as we've seen all throughout this letter, this is agape love. This is to love in such a way as to seek the highest good of the one loved. This is the only way that unity is going to work is when people are honest and when people love. I love how um, Timothy Keller Um, translates this. He says, we must have absolute honesty saturated in love. We must be people of absolute honesty saturated in love. And nothing combines honesty and love together better than the gospel. And so we must be people whose personalities are transformed by the cross, transformed by the gospel, by the truth and the love of the gospel. And then we'll have unity. We'll come to this maturity in this unity, to this fullness as every part comes together to do their measure. So just three characteristics, the priority of God's word, the plurality of God's ministry, and the personality of God's people. May we be a church that grows in unity. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this text. We're thankful for its message to us. We're thankful for its challenge to us. I'm thankful that I'm, I'm not in this by myself. I'm thankful that this church doesn't just call me to do ministry. This church calls each one of us. I'm thankful that I don't have the burden or the responsibility on myself individually to become the likeness of Christ. That's impossible. You've never placed that burden upon me. You've never placed the responsibility on me alone to become like you. You've put that on the church. And that together, with each part, with each measure doing its part, 
will come into the full likeness, the full measure of Christ. And so may we be a church that grows in unity in that way. I pray this for us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, the, uh, the invitation this morning uh, is for, for anybody here who has not made a um, declaration of faith in Jesus, who, who's not put Christ on in baptism, if you're here this morning. You know, I mentioned, I mentioned that there's nothing that combines honesty and love better than the gospel. And I hope you know that. I hope if, if you are a believer, you know that to be true. But if you are here today and, and you've not said, I believe, if you've not put your faith in Christ, if you've not said that I, I want to commit the rest of my life to, to him, then I want you to know that the most honest thing that I can tell you today, I, I, I don't know of anything more true or more truthful or more honest is that you are so lost that Jesus had to die for you. That's honesty. But then I also don't know anything more loving that I could tell you this morning than that you're so loved that Jesus wanted to die for you. I hope you know that good news. I hope you know the gospel. And if you want to respond to the gospel by putting your faith in him this morning, by putting Christ on in baptism, we'd love for you to do that as we stand together and sing.